This is Dr. David Proden, and I want to thank you as we begin another journey into school and community safety. If you're looking for industrial safety expert, Appalachian State University professor, Dr. Timothy Ludwig, please visit www.safety-doc.com. Again, that's Dr. Timothy Ludwig at www.safety-doc.com. Welcome to the Safety Doc Podcast with author, radio host, and nationally recognized safety expert, Dr. David Perodin. Join us each week as we discuss the best and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. Follow Dr. Perodin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe. Hi, everybody. This is Dr. David Proden, and welcome to the Safety Doc Podcast. So, it is wood-burning time here in southern Wisconsin. Actually had high temperature, just barely getting to 30 degrees today. Inch of snow on the ground. Fireplace has been doing overtime. Um, kind of funny. I was out running the other night, and as I'm running, I can smell smoke. Someone has a fire going and it smells good. You know, the smell of hickory and oak and maple um, just has kind of this soothing, warming, comforting aura about it. But I'm also thinking, eh, probably not everybody's into this. Like this person doesn't have their fire hot enough because typically what happens is when the where I run, it's a little bit of a lower part of town. So if you don't have a really hot fire, the smoke isn't rising up higher into the air and being carried off. It's being kind of brought, cooled and brought back down into the valley, kind of where I run. So I'm thinking, boy, somebody just doesn't have their fire going warm enough yet. I wonder who that is. Um, come to find out, it is me. <laughs> I, I get closer and I'm like, oh, that's coming out of my chimney. Just don't have it hot enough yet. Um, so it's being pushed down and kind of smothering the neighborhood, not where you're walking through and you can see smoke or it's foggy or anything like that. So, um, but yeah, it's, uh, it is an advantage of living at the top of a hill, (laughs) but down below, uh, I'm sure sometimes my neighbors are like, Dave, get that fire going hot. Um, and it was just one of those times where it all, it also has to do with, um, the pressure differentials in the atmosphere. And I learned this when I was out in Hibbing, Minnesota, observing a mine blast at the Hibbing Open Air Ore Mine, which I think is the biggest in the United States. It provided a substantial amount of of iron ore uh, for manufacturing during, during World War II. So interesting to look this up, Hibbing Mine. Also the fact that they moved the entire town of Hibbing um, as they were mining because they had to mine where the town was to get the iron ore. So they, they moved the town, I think, a mile or two away. And now, actually, they're approaching closer as they mine <laughs> back to where this town was, um, or, or the current town is. So I did a video back in, I don't know, it was 2016, I think. And my dad and I did this trip up to Superior, and then we also went up to Hibbing. We're fortunate to be there on a day of a blast and you're far enough away. I mean, a solid mile, but the but you can see everything. I mean, it's um, pretty spectacular. And it was a clear day. Um, a fence, um, mesh steel fence, and they have little holes, like four to six, in the fence where people can take their cameras and film. Um, and there, there was a lady filming beside me, um, and her camera died. Battery went dead. And she's like, oh, just can't believe it. Like <laughs> battery's dead. Do you want this spot? I'm like, sure. So I had my camcorder and uh, set up and, and got this shot of when this explosion happened, this detonation, and then everything, you know, flies up and, and everything shakes and um, still quite a ways away, but pretty spectacular. Um, but before this explosion, a, an airplane, you know, like kind of a a crop dusting type airplane flies a crisscross pattern over top of where they're going to do this explosion in the mine. 
And again, it's an open-air mine, so they would just explode these areas to loosen them up, and then they would dig them out with um, you know, the machinery and load them into these, these massive dump trucks and, and take them off and stuff like that. So nothing's underground. It's all happening on surface level. Um, but they're flying this back, and I have it recorded, and I remember asking somebody, I'm like, why are they doing that? And, he, and this was somebody, it's interesting because people like that had worked at the mine for 30, 40 years would come back on blast days to, to observe this. It's just such a big part of their life. And especially, I mean, if you're in Hibbing, Minnesota, there's not a lot going in Hibbing, Minnesota other than the mine. Um, I think the Greyhound Museum is there also. But um, the, the what happens, they fly the plane over and if there is a difference in the temperature so far above you know whether i don't know half mile above or something like that the the vib- vibrations the the waves the shock wave coming up if it hits like this denser air it can actually then just be turned around and sent back down to the ground and if that happens it can do damage to the machinery on the ground damage to people so basically the shock wave is just supposed to go up and dissipate into the atmosphere, which, you know, happens most of the time. But apparently at some time in the past, it didn't work that way. So that's why they do this crisscross and making sure that everything is fine as far as the upper levels of the atmosphere. Um, And yeah, it it was pretty uneventful after that, but pretty amazing. The video is still out there and I think it has like a thousand views and a few people like it. And one person actually put a thumbs down, which I, I'm wondering like why you would give a thumbs down to a video like that. It just didn't make any sense to me. Not that I take it personal because it's really just, I set it up just to record this event and I thought it was so unique and the video turned out really well that I'd share it with other people that had interest in the mine. It's not like I'm sitting there narrating the whole thing because I really don't know what's going on. You can hear people in the background kind of talking. Um, but yeah, someone gives it a thumbs down. I'm like, well, hmm, I'd Again, I don't get that. <laughs> so if you're clicking on Hibbing Mine video, like I'm not sure how many Hibbing Mine videos are out there that this one, you know, had had somebody decided to give it a thumb down. But um, yeah, yeah. Um, so another, something I was thinking about. So today I'm going to be talking about the Zen of stacking firewood. And actually there are websites, blogs um, that have been done on this topic. I wasn't aware of when I decided to do this podcast that other people had had experienced the similar feeling of what I'm going to share with you today and how this relates to personal well-being. So when we talk about safety um, on the Safety Doc podcast, physical safety, psychological safety, in, in our last podcast with Ilita Kenley, spiritual safety. So today we're going to go back into personal safety, personal well-being. And I'm going to point out, um, I recently completed transferring um, about nine cords of firewood from my garage into my basement, which is something that happens pretty much every year because we heat part of the house with wood and a wood insert. So it's very high efficiency. Something special about wood and just the whole process of preparing the wood and the smell of the wood, deciding how you're going to stack a pile of wood. I'll get into that. So in one of my early administrative jobs, um, there was an in-town elementary school, and it since has been replaced. But that school had, every classroom had a massive fireplace, Um, literally probably six to eight feet wide um, with this this arching brick. Uh, so this was a building, you know, 1905, 1908-ish built. And it was so spectacular to go room to room with the high ceilings. And then, of course, these fireplaces hadn't been used for decades, but they were still there. You know, they had been blocked off, but they were still there. And it almost projected this sense of psychological warmth in this bygone era and almost this this primal comfort to walk through that building and to go into those classrooms and and also thankful that they didn't decide at some point to renovate these buildings and and you know put drywall in front of that and just make it into a standard wall that it was still there like it was it still had the the soot you know stained um, 
bricks that you know were there from the last time they had used it, maybe in the 1920s or, or 1930s, who knows? And, and just thinking like how removed we are today from a society that would even think or allow something like that to be in a school. Could you just imagine? <laughs> this new school got done, this new elementary school, and every classroom has a large fireplace. <laughs> um, yeah, but something very special about that. So one of the things I love about stacking firewood, I got done with this about two weeks ago. Took my time this year, different than previous years. I'll get into that, but one of the things about stacking firewood is that it is it's task completion. It is task completion. You see the commotion of the wood being delivered and this massive pile of, of wood develops inside the two-car garage as it gets dumped off. Um, and I actually get wood from um, a supplier. It's a guy you know who's retired and he and his, his kids supply mat in the Madison area some of the uh, businesses that use wood for um, their fireplaces for pizza, and then has a few other clients and me, but goes through a lot of wood. So it's a big wood production, even though there's a small number of people he interacts with. And but uh, but you know, like nine cords is quite a bit of wood, and I, I could probably even go through more than that. Uh, but I'm careful with the damper, damper and how much air is getting in and <laughs> how fast or how slow things burn. But, um, but anyway, going back, you know, we are no longer a task completion society. I've thought about this a lot lately. And what I mean by this is we have, we have fewer things we engage in that are truly uh, have a start point, have a tangible activity that you can see the results of, that you can interact with, that you can touch, um, and then there's a defined end to it. So we don't we don't have that. That's I work in school safety, and it's so evident in school safety. It's this race without a finish line. Um, there'll never be a completion to school safety. Whatever is put together as a safety fortification, someone goes about either. Uh, circumventing that or a new way to attack a school. And what does reporting look like? And what does reporting look like when social media advances and now there's different apps and there's things that include GP? I mean, so you get into this network where your your job will never be complete because what you're working with is always evolving and changing. You can never account for all the variables. And as you change one thing, it'll change the variable that you're trying to impact. So it can, and it does re, re, produce burnout. I mean, it burns people out. There's studies, again, the old there's studies thing, but um, of the burnout, if you're dealing with humans and scenarios like this versus if you're dealing with something that's very mechanical of that has a kind of a start point, you work on something and there's an end point. So, um, you know, it, I was doing some nostalgia thinking. So I turned 47, 47 on November 7th. And um, the number at face value looks old to me. Now, most of my, most people who I work with or, or know me were guessing I was 41 to 44 and no one was coming in at 47 and nobody came in above that. So I guess I feel good. <laughs> and I mean, I feel physically very good for 47. Again, I'm thankful to not have knee and hip and back problems and stuff like that. Um, so, but yeah, 47, you know, so again, some face value and, but looking, looking back, peeling back some of those years, remembering when I was involved in many closure activities in the old days, <laughs> I remember painting fences. Um, and, you know, w w come on, fence. Uh, we, we had a, a, a redwood fence uh, that had faded over years. And I remember, you know, the different uh, buckets and getting them ready and getting them, shake them up and just work your way across the fence. I mean, every every day until you got it done, I think it took three days. Um 
to to get this fence done. It was a big fence, um, and 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 seeing the progression. And of course, it's kind of frustrating at the start because you're like, oh, I have all this left to do. And then halfway through, it's like, whoa! Like when it all gets done, it's going to be really cool. Then it gets done, and you stand back and look at it. It's like, wow! And it's done. Um, so you know, mowing lawns. Right now, I wish I could kind of mow my lawn. It's under an inch of snow, and I didn't get all the leaves up in time. <laughs> so that's a little bit of a problem um, I have to deal with. But, but you know, mowing my lawn also has a zen-like quality to it. Start, mow it, put a pattern into it, done. Get the uh, get the grass off of the driveway, and and just I'll literally I'll stand on the road, or I'll go across the road and stand by the curb by my neighbors, and just look over and take in like it looks great, it, you know, the start to finish, and the the mowing, the moving, the walking, um, the picking up of the sticks actually before you start, you know, and and washing of the mower, putting the mower away, but all of these steps that have a defined start and a defined end. Thank you for tuning in to the Safety Doc Podcast with the nation's leading safety expert, Dr. David Perodin, author, radio show host, university instructor, researcher, expert witness, and consultant. Powerful testimonials. Dr. Perodin has a strong reputation as the go-to safety consultant, and he was still able to exceed our expectations. When we went looking for an expert in the field of crisis preparedness and prevention, David was the single person we pursued. Not easy stepping into the touchier subjects of life, but Dr. David pulls it off. Take a listen. Now, back to Dr. David Perodin and the Safety Doc Podcast. And then, you know, replacing the spark plugs and wires on my car, in addition to other maintenance, you know, pulling out the air filter and flushing the radiator, but I mean, probably the typical changing out the plugs, not like it, not like today, you know, where spark plugs either last the lifetime of the car um or you know these these things are kind of lifetime you know lifetime transmission fluid and lifetime whatever but that's not the way it was so i remember replacing spark plugs so, so you'd get out the ratchet set which had been handed down to me and you had your certain fitting just for the spark plug and and cars were made so you could access these things because they actually expected that you would do maintenance on your own vehicle. <laughs> um, so you didn't have, you know, like today, everything kind of has a nice, tidy plastic cover over it when you lift your lift your hood. So, I mean, you can put your windshield washer fluid in, but pretty much everything else is, is you know, kind, kind of hard to get at. But yeah, replacing the spark plugs, and I loved doing that on my old Plymouth Duster, which still had a carburetor, didn't even have fuel injection on my LeBaron, on my dad's uh, F-150 pickup truck. And just something of of taking the plugs out, you know, with the ratchet and hearing the noise of the ratchet, um, getting the plugs out. And then there used to be, it was about the size of a 50 cent piece um, and it was tapered. And, and that's how you would get the gap on the spark plug. So you'd buy the spark plugs and then you would set the gap to whatever it was, 0.25, 0.3, with this little hand device. I still have it up in my toolbox. Set your gap, and then, you know, you put the plug, tighten it back into a certain amount of, you know, not over-tighten it, tighten it back in. And then the wires, whether you'd use the wires or you'd replace the wires, uh, periodically I'd put out a new set of wires. I mean, those things didn't last also as long as they did today. Um, and then, boom, you're ready to go. And again, such a feeling um, of a start finish. You know, you can see the spark plugs you've you've taken out, and you know they're they're kind of burned down, and um, hands are hands are dirty and and everything. But you know, you turn the ignition, and the car fires up, and it's like just such a a sense of again a start, um, a zen like activity as as you're as you're going through 
you know, working out the spark plugs, taking your time, setting the gap, getting everything back together. So, you know, sports seasons seemed to have this clear start and clear end when I was growing up. Um, and I think that's gone today. I, I think even for kids sports, um, it's year round. So if you're not in the season, you are in the off season. The off season means training in camps and all of these specialized, you know, uh, workouts and, and stuff like that. And, you know, but back when I played sports, you know, when football season ended, it ended and then basketball season started when basketball season ended, then it was baseball and you didn't have this kind of continuous cycle and camps and training. And, and so even that's gone today. And, um, I coached basketball back in the eighties. And as I look back on that time, something that was so special about that was that kids weren't rushing over to their cell phones when a game was done or a practice was done or on a bus ride home or something like that. Um, it was talking to one another. It was also being able to reflect and think upon the game or as you're going to a game, you could immerse yourself much more in the moment and engage in reflection and introspection. Um, that you can't do today. And that's just gone. Um, my work in school administration, that's that's really a swirling tempest. <laughs> you know, you serve students age three through 21. So you can have this pretty long relationship with, you know, the families, especially if you have students with disabilities, complex situations you're working with. And it can be half your career. I mean, it can be, you know, 17, 18 years. And, and, especially when when there's friction in those situations um, with service delivery um, or, or even like very complicated service delivery where you're always in the mode of having to, to train people to work with specialists. They might move away. There's high demand. It's hard to get another specialist. Um, it, it does create, uh, you know, this, this burnout because, again, there isn't, closure in these activities that there isn't there isn't closure and it's hard to get like this tangible of what you have um and i think that i think i really think going back and i gave this interview on the sustainable living podcast with marianne west but that was one of the hardest times in my life um because i was in this constant mode with many people in many situations where it was the race without a finish line and it was high demand. It was complex. There weren't a lot of tangible things coming out of that. Again, when you're working in more of a human services related field um, and people were, were, you know, presenting, presenting needs, um, it becomes very draining, very, can be very frustrating. You lose perspective. It's hard to gain perspective back because again, you can't just step out and kind of reset yourself or the system People might say, well, yeah, you've got summer to do that, like summer break, but but not really because you would have extended school year students would receive services in summer and, and there were then all of the state reports due in summer and summer programs. And once you got out of school in June, it, it took a couple of weeks to wind things down. And, and really in a few weeks later, you were starting right up with all of your start of year planning for staff on school safety and type 1 diabetes management and all the curriculum initiatives and training new substitute teachers and so forth. So um, really, really was a hard time. Glad I've moved beyond that. So when there's an opportunity to stack firewood, I embrace it <laughs> because it's spiritual and it is a, there's a Zen aspect to it, to stacking wood. Um, you know, it seems it seems like it's a mundane task, um, but again, there's a clear beginning and a clear end. Let's talk a little bit more about it. So there's some rules. Okay, you can go online and do a search about stacking wood, and you'll come up with the people who say, here's exactly how to stack a pile of wood two pieces this way, two pieces this way, do it this way, tape or whatever. 
Like, well, yeah, you could get into all of that. That's not what we're going to talk about today. Um, so, you know, there are a few things, though. You want to elevate the wood off the floor. So I put down some two-by-fours. Um, we're always dry here, but just for circulation of air, get a little, get some air going um, throughout the pile because the pile will dry a little bit as you get it, depending upon how well it's been cured. But the pile also absorbs the humidity that's in the house and it gives off the humidity as, as the house humidity lowers. And periodically give it that wobble test, front, back, side to side, just you know a little bit. If it's wobbling too much, Take your time with the pile, slow things down, crisscross some of the wood, um, and you know, just it, it'll it'll naturally kind of find its stability, find its torus, and everything will be everything will be good. So, um, a cord of wood for those of you that don't know. So, a cord of wood measures four feet high by four feet wide, eight feet long. Volume of a uh, 128 cubic feet. So basically, if you if you get wood delivered, um, it, depending upon the moisture, it can weigh between you know three and four thousand pounds, like that much wood. So I live in a ranch house and have a two car garage. Garage we empty the garage out, take the vehicles out, and that's where the firewood gets delivered. Fills up a big part of the garage, like this big mountain of wood. Chaotic kind of commotion all over it just like it's just put there um and then i take the wood in a wood sack which is this heavy canvas sack take it downstairs so i have to come into the house then down the stairs into the furnace room i identify the rooms in the house by their utility so like i don't know what a family room is or a living room this is my office, and then next to this is the furnace room, <laughs> and then that's the laundry room. But um, go into the furnace room, and the furnace room is pretty big, obviously has the furnace and water heater in it. Also has another whole corner, whole side where I stack the wood. So that's where it is, in the furnace room and the wood room, I guess. So the house becomes more humid when you're done stacking the wood because the wood, as it dries, will bring that humidity into that room and, and, and throughout the house. So there's this, this, this time of maybe two, three weeks when the humidity will jump in the house. Nothing that's uncomfortable. It's not like a summer humidity, like a sweltery, hot heat. But it's more, um, it, it, you can tell it's the air is more dense. And it's dense with this this smell, again, of, of oak and, and maple. Really great. I mean, it, it's it's almost like this, this um, calming um you know this, this 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 calming fragrance in the air. This that wraps around you. It may, the air is a little more dense, a little more thick, but all in a good way. Almost like this blanket. Um, and and just as you sit on the couch or even in bed, and that is in the air and it's lingering. It is. It's special. It it really is. And and then when it kind of levels out. Um, you know, you don't notice it anymore because again, then it then the wood pile is going to track pretty close to whatever the humidity is in your house. But for a while, initially, it's going to give off um, a little bit of its moisture to level itself with the humidity because it's not very humid down here in the basement where I'm, where the studio is. Um, so yeah, just it, it's it's I will describe it as. Um, the two to four weeks where, I mean, I hope I don't have a cold because just being able to to smell that, again, this, this the split oak, split maple, maybe some hickory in there, it is, it's just wonderful. So, you know, I, I used to take all of the firewood and haul it downstairs in a day, in a day. So it would be delivered like 7.30 in the morning, um, they bring multiple trucks, trailers, whatever, to get the, the cords that, you know, the quantity I ordered. 
And um, I would just go to town and my dad would come down and he'd be in the basement and he would stack. So I would haul everything down, dump the wood, and he would stack the piles, which worked well. And I know he enjoyed doing that and I appreciated it. But what it did is it just kept me going nonstop bringing wood down. Like I, I, when you stop to stack wood, that's a pause. And then it's a whole different change of what you're doing from just putting wood in the bag and slugging it downstairs. Um, you now have to evaluate your 20 pieces of wood, you know, like from three dumps with the bag. And then where are you going to put these? And some pieces you'll be like, I have no idea where this will go because it's like all bulbous on one end and the other end's real skinny. So you got to like figure out in the pile. And it all, it just is, it's like a sixth sense. You can just read it. You like, you just know, you can kind of feel as you're going with the wood and even the pieces that are more dense and, and lighter. And so, okay, this, this piece is a little bit bigger. I'm going to set this one off on the side. This is going to start building the corner. Um, so that, that was something I actually hated the day that wood would be delivered. Now I love wood and I love the, again, our fires, we have a going tonight, but I would hate the date that the wood would be delivered because it was complete exhaustion for me, uh, literally of just up and down the stairs with these bags of wood. And I forget, you know, I, I weighed one bag one time and then kind of kept track of the trips I was taking, just the thousands of pounds I was transporting. And the older I got, the greater the toll it took on my body to literally like it would stretch the tendons out and you can could feel them move over the bones and you'd cramp up and your toes would swell and hands would swell. And I mean, um, it's one thing maybe to do that at age 30. <laughs> it's a different to do it, do it at age 47 where you look and it's like, I'm going to conquer this wood pile and get this thing downstairs. And, and that was more task completion. Um, so when I came into this year, I was like, I'm not going to do that because I, I actually do like the stacking and for my body, it's not a good thing to do that approach anymore. So I spread it out over two weekends. So I had the wood delivered on a Saturday, spent about six hours that Saturday. Then the next day spent about five hours. And then during the week, didn't do anything. And then the next weekend and all inside, put the garage door down spent again about another six hours, another five hours, had everything down. And that way my body felt fine. I wasn't overworking myself. And I had time to put the wood down um, and, and do the stacking. So one of the things, you know, going back to when I made these stacks, so it's a lot of wood. So you'll see a picture, like if you go online, <laughs> if you're looking at the thumbnail for this podcast, or if you're gonna watch the video, you're gonna be able to see the picture. But um, my dad actually came up with this way to craft kind of this L-shaped wood pile that would wrap in and kind of add stability to one of the sides. Because one, one goes up against a poured cement wall, and the other side also goes against a poured cement wall. So right there, I'm in good shape. Nothing to worry about, but then needing to stabilize the rest. And then I kind of did some some layering techniques where it goes high and then it gets a little lower and a little lower, just like they kind of did on um, how farmers will do that on hills. Like they'll, they'll do, you know, different, different cuts into the hills. So to prevent erosion, kind of the same way that I create stability with this wood pile. So I have a high efficiency wood burning stove put in in 2006. I remember the day we looked at all of the stoves and, and went back, um, decided which one to pick out. It is black. We have a stone wall, um, but we had a traditional fireplace when we bought the house. It had been there since the house was built. And then this unit went in, has a lot of glass. You can see the wood that was important. Um, and very again, very efficient and will has a fan, puts a lot of heat back into the house. Also will heat the stone wall. So if you have the fire going six, eight, 10 hours or longer, the wall itself, the big stones heat up. 
So when the fire goes out, the the heat will eventually work its way back out of the stones and into the fireplace room and kind of that side of the house. So it, it keeps it nice and toasty for a long time. Um, and while it costs money, obviously, for the wood, uh, my heat bills are pretty low. So it, everything kind of levels out throughout the, the year. Um, but it's really, it, it, that insert is also very simple. It has a little bit of a design. It maybe looks like something like from like the 30s or 40s, um, although it was 2006. I had to replace the fan one time. But, you know, very basic. But it, it, it looks like very good. Like if you would have done something more ornate or whatever, it would not have played off of the stones well. This just looks like it, it was there from day one. Like this was, and, and the focal point still becomes the stones. And then when you have a fire because of all of the glass in the front of the unit, then the fire, of course, becomes a focal point. So just, it's really, it's really neat. It's neat to have a house like that. Like a lot of people don't have a house with a fireplace and a heavy poured flue and, and just it, it is such um, such an asset, and then you have the the smell too of of the burning wood, which is so I would say therapeutic and relaxing. And the view of the fire, and especially as you turn the lights out. And there's sometimes I'll sleep out there in winter if I don't have to get up the next day, and it might be it during a you know a s- snowstorm or something like that. And uh, mo- sometimes the whole family, the the you know, we'll just set up and we'll sleep out there for the fact of um, it's just it's a little warmer. Not that the rest of the house is cold. I mean, furnace takes care of things, but but just to have that warmth from the fireplace, and then when you shut all the lights off and and the fire's burning, in that orange glow and and kind of dancing of the of the flames, it's. It again is so soothing and so special. Um, I value that so much. And it's funny because my daughters will ask, "Hey, like, when are you building a fire tonight, Dad?" Because even for them, it it, it they want to be by it. Um, and I remember when the girls were little, uh, I put this padded thing around the hearth of the fireplace, which is still there today. It's actually it was really well made and looks like it should naturally be there and might as well be there. Um, there was There's no need to kind of take it away. And making sure that they weren't ever close to the fire because if, if you, you know, got close to this insert, you could get burned. Um, and we've never had a problem with the cats. Actually, we had adopted one cat. It was on New Year's Eve. I think it was 2003. And our other cat, our older cat, <laughs> our one cat at the time, um, this cat we adopted was a kitten and jumped up on the hearth and the older cat immediately went on the hearth and grabbed the kitten behind the neck, like just bit the kitten as a mother cat would kind of do and lifted the cat off of the hearth and back onto the floor. And that's the only time that, that kitten ever went up there. So, um, kind of, kind of a neat, a neat memory, but that's a, so where this fireplace is, it's a it's a large room, and it has in back of it opposite at the fireplace. So if you know you're standing and not looking at the fireplace, but but turned so the fireplace is at your back, you'd be looking across the room at a bank of windows that then about another hundred and hundred twenty feet back is parkland, but it kind of narrows. Um, it's not the parkland where the playground equipment is. It's just it it's, it narrows down. It's like all brushy and stuff like that, which actually in summer is great because it's a natural um, barrier. We you know people can't see your property and you can't see other people. It kind of creates like you're in this country area, but you're really in the city. Um, so that's really that's really cool to look out. Then we have a um, two big glass sliding doors off of that room that come right off of that room into a porch, which is like 12 by 12 foot and has um, this this mesh. Um, and that porch was redone when we had the um, house majorly updated about 10 years ago. So it was all done with the synthetic wood so nothing would rot. Um, and then this heavy screen, this they call it pet screen, so it can't be snagged and it never has. So when it's warm out, you can open that up and that's a whole other area 
which is really relaxing to go out to and hear crickets at night. And um, But again, so you have so much that you can look out over and that actually looks down um, into like an open area that the, that the city has, just a like green space. So like kids will be out there in winter sledding down a hill and and in summer they'll be playing, you know, just some, some ball or some catch down there. So just as a really nice, again, really nice room, nice view. Um, out our back window there, we have sandhill cranes, which will walk through deer often, fox, um, and there's a muskrat works his way out through there. Of course, many squirrels. Uh, it's really, it's really fun. So that's, that's my fireplace room. I've talked about the Zen and also the Zen of the fireplace, but, um, we have our, we have our three cats and when you have a fire, (laughs) They all they they love it. They get close to the fireplace on in the, on the floor, and then they just stretch out. Usually, they'll flip on their backs and they'll kind of their their fur becomes this kind of radiator where it actually takes in the heat. Like if you put your hand on their belly, it's just like warm because it's it's bringing in all of the heat. And they would stay there for hours, literally hours, like five, six hours. They'll just stay like right there. <laughs> like they're, they're content. This is, and, and again, there is a relaxation into watching that. And when you start that fire, you build the fire, put it in. Um, there is this, 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 this feeling of the wood and, and how you're positioning the wood. And I don't use a lot of kin, kindling anymore. I've kind of just got it down where I can do it with newspaper. Um, and as the fire grows and as you're feeding the fire and changing the flue and how much air it's getting as it's, as it's heating up and, um, and kind of working the fire through the night. And then, you know, what, the cats are on their backs. We're enjoying the heat. And then as it cools, fire burns out, the heat works its way out of the stone. It's just really, again, relaxing. A couple times, though, if you start a fire and the air is really dense out, remember I talked about that, that, plane that flies over the Hibbing mine before they do the blast. If the air is very dense, um, so, so kind of humid and then also um, cold, uh, it takes, it will push down on the smoke. So as you start the fire, smoke will start to go up the chimney, but the chimney's cold. So the, the chimney will condense the smoke because the chimney's not warm and um, it'll send the smoke back down and then it comes back back into the fireplace, out the front of the fireplace, even though fireplace doors are closed, the the vents where the heat are radiated out, smoke will come back into the room. Doesn't happen often, but if it does, it's nothing to panic about because um, it doesn't mean the house is starting on fire or anything like that. We just open up the sliding door, um, let the smoke kind of out of the room, and then I just have to get a lot more paper and, and smaller pieces of wood to get that updraft because as soon as you can get the wood and leave the door open to the fireplace too so the updraft the air is sucking in from the room and coming you know through the chimney and and you can heat things up pretty fast that way it happens maybe once or twice a year so it's it reminds me of the movie a christmas story where ralphie's dad the smoke starts coming upstairs from the fire or the furnace that's acting up and he goes down and and he's finagling with it to to get it working again. Well, you know, this is just one of those things, atmospheric. And it really, it doesn't, I don't get upset by it. It doesn't raise my blood pressure. I just, you just know what's going on. And, you know, it's going to take about two minutes, maybe three minutes. It'll resolve. It can air out the house quickly. And I mean, and what's the worst you're dealing with? Like some really awesome oak and maple, you know, smoke that's that's worked its way into the house so um i remember i had had the chimney cleaned i think a year or two ago and it it, the chimney's almost always like just spotless because we do burn like such good quality hardwood (laughs) that's another thing you know when you burn it's kind of the wood that you burn too that the hardwoods give out the most heat and then they also keep your chimneys the cleanest so um you know, anyway, back back to stacking wood. You know, I said I've, I've done the alternative approach this year where I've spread it out over the four days. It's been much more um, 
physically better for me and, and then I can relax too as I'm taking the wood down and again putting those misfit pieces like where are these going to go like this one almost looks like it's got some weird curve to it <laughs> like how is this going to fit into a pile but it usually does and there's a trick though I always leave room on the top of the pile where if there are pieces that just absolutely won't fit anywhere else then they just go to the top of the pile <laughs> And I've got a couple of those I deal with or I'll set those off to the side and those will be the first ones that I'll, that I'll burn out. Uh, but it doesn't happen a lot. Um, but to see that pile just develop is, is so incredible. Um, and it's so rewarding. I, I, I take a picture every year when it's done. Take a picture of the wood pile. And I just like to look at it. Like, and, and when I'm done, I'll go in that room a few times and just like look at it. And yeah, it's a little bit sad as year goes on and the pile gets smaller, you know, as, as you're burning. Um, and it, and it, it kind of is this, this way to tell time of how much wood is left of where you are at, because not a lot is left once you get into March. And the goal is to burn through the wood because you, you don't want the wood to stay down there year after year, or some unburned because you can, can get bugs and stuff like that. Um, but um, it is it is so amazing again. And, um, you know, I was talking about when all of this wood arrives and initially it seems like it's a daunting task, which... It kind of was years ago, but now, and even this time my daughters look out at it and they're like, oh my goodness, that's a lot of wood. <laughs> and it actually does look like a lot more than it is when it's not stacked, when it's just lying there versus when it's all tidy. Although still like when it's stacked, it's pretty, pretty massive. Um, and it's, it's, maybe it's just a guy thing. Like, doesn't that wood pile look good? Like I have a few friends that burn wood <laughs> and I send them pictures of the wood pile and they like compliment back like it's a lot of wood or that's well stacked or yeah get ready for for the season you know of wood burning um and, and then they'll send me a picture too of like got my wood in the backyard here's a picture of it um stacked uh so uh yeah just an appreciation of that of that skill so um you know over over the years too. I mean, I used to buy these things like these fire starters. They come in little cups. They're like the cups you'd get to put ketchup in at a fast food restaurant. So it's kind of that waxy paper, small cupish thing. And what, what they do is they'll mix in wax and sawdust and they sell these things as fire starters. And I mean, they typically work. Um, but again, I've moved beyond that. And if I have to like pay for devices to start my fire, it's I kind of feel like I'm losing. <laughs> like I should be better than that. I should be able to stack it in a certain way and, you know, with newspaper and enough air going in that it just starts, which it does. So um, when I'm, when I periodically will clear out the ash, I'll, you know, put everything in a bucket um, and then go out. We have a big flower garden um, in back of our house, remember I talked where that parkland is, it's kind of halfway to the, where that parkland is. And I will take this ash, which is again, you know, oak and maple, and I'll pour it into this garden because there's nothing in the garden, you know, that, that time of year, everything's died off or the perennials are gone, the annuals have been pulled out. And I found that it it is kind of like that Mount St. Helens effect, like it really provides the nutrients to the garden. The garden grows very well. And, you know, we work it in in spring um, into the soil, but that's always done a nice job. Now, it's kind of a skill, though, too, because as you as you dump this down, you create this plume of, of, of ash dust. <laughs> so if you're too close to it, you're going to just get covered in ash, which is a mess. You don't want that. Um, or it's on your shoes, then that's hard to get off. So you kind of do this run next to it, and then the bucket is a little in back of you, a five-gallon pail, and then you're pouring it out along the garden until it's all out. I've got it down, like so now I have no problem with this. And in winter, when everything's covered with snow, then you just see like this ash pattern on top, which is kind of neat to look at a little bit out the back window. 
Um, and then, of course, once it snows, it covers it back up. Then there's, there's, there's also this process of cleaning the fireplace and um, taking the time to take the ash out and wiping down the mirrors. There's special cleaners for that um, that they make just for fireplace glass. And sometimes some of the glass you just can't get clean. So I use a wet pumice stick and we'll gent- gently go over the inside of the glass. And that seems to take off any stuff that I wasn't able to get through the other processes and get the glass really nice. And it'll stay that way for quite a while. But eventually, you know, the glass kind of darkens up um, from the wood. But yeah, getting everything cleaned out, doing the little thing with the vac. Got a little hand vac just to make sure anything that gets on the hearth, I get sucked up. Of course, this is all stuff like a few days after a fire. <laughs> so nothing is hot, you know. <laughs> Not taking hot coals into a pail or something like that. Um, and then once you get into April, there's always that day where it's like, okay, it's like 65 degrees and the rest of the week is going to be in the 60s. And it's like, this is it. Like, this is the end of the fire burning season. So officially spend uh, an hour or two shutting the fireplace down, getting all of the ash out, um, kind of making sure with the the vac, vacking out anything like with the wet dry vac and making sure I've got the filter on so don't get dust into the house. Um, getting the, 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 the glass all clean and, and just checking that everything's in good working order. And But it is an odd feeling to give it kind of that last turn of the handle and, and shut it knowing you're not going to have another fire until probably October. Um, so again, this, we're, again, we're talking about this, this definite cycle of a, of a start tangible things happening, things that aren't requiring kind of your, your judgment, just things that happen. Um, things that, and things that you want to have happen, things that are bringing comfort to you. And then this closure, this end of season, getting the fireplace ready for next year, or actually ready for next season. And um, I'll tell you, though, it, while it does, it's a little bit sad, I also love spring. <laughs> and I know I'm going to be getting my bike out, doing my bike rides, um, I'll be getting my mower out and, and working on my yard. So it's, it's a good transition for me, um, to be shutting down the fireplace, but it, it, but it is again, one of these things, especially as I, as I get to be 47, as I am 47, you, you have this primal sense, this connection and yeah, 47, but you know, how many years do you have where you will go through this? Um, hopefully quite a few, but you know, um, I have relatives who have, who in the last year in our extended family been pretty rough, you know, like five, six, either between passing away or, or having to leave their homes to go to assisted living or nursing. Um, so some pretty substantial changes and, and you just never know, um, and realistically, what, 47, so what, maybe 30 years of life <laughs> left? I mean, for a man, it's just kind of the way it is. I mean, um, and, uh, you know, it's, so it seems like a lot of time, but it's not. So it's this appreciation of the time that you have and the zen of stacking firewood and the zen of building a fire and the zen of shutting your your fireplace down at the end of, of the year, getting the ash out, and getting the, the glass cleaned, getting the hearth all cleaned. and Wow. Um, you know, so find those defining beginning and ending activities in your life. And they're probably not going to have to do with anything that involves people. They're going to be tangible, physical activities. When I say physical, I, I think there is, there can definitely be the Zen component of writing, 
like I wrote a book, you know, that you, you, you do that, but, um, and the book, I guess, would be the, the outcome, or if you're helping people or running a marathon, or I don't know, what was maybe some of these things, and, but, like, I remember canoeing with my, my dad many summers, and, and enjoyed that, um, but I'm saying there is there is something different, like with the stacking of a wood type project, where you're starting out, you're seeing it, and you're engaging it, and it, you have to, and you're problem solving as you're going through this, and it's it's quiet, like I don't have a radio on or anything, of what pieces go where, and and they all, and you and you just kind of this spatial ability, it's it's you know that we you can look at the pile and just know that this one piece needs to go over here, but then these other three pieces, but it can't be like that finicky because it would take you forever to stack this. It's just this natural feel of where these these pieces go as you pick them up and their weight and their their layout and their design, um, how they've been split. So aim aim for something where you're moving your body. Aim for something that's tangible at the end. Um, again, I mean, you, you could argue taking a walk is a Zen activity. Biking, I think is, you know, can, is a Zen activity probably more so for me because I can definitely feel the change in my body a uh, big time as I start a large, you know, undertake biking, <laughs> get the bike ready in the morning, do all of the, the setting the pressures on the tires and packing everything and hydrating myself and doing the ride and enjoying and being in touch in the ride and coming home. But there's also this thing of, you know, walking and biking. I mean, it builds your endurance, your muscle. It's this long-term, maybe kind of Zen, um, much, much longer scale. Like that one winter, I think I walked like every night, you know, that was like three, four months of this long Zen process versus this fireplace. What I'm talking about there of, of, and stacking of the firewood of the Zen process, it's much more condensed. And I think you, you, again, for me, it is so, um, so different than what I work with every day. And maybe too, I'm at this part in life where I met with the retirement people in the state and I met with the social security people and I met with all of the people in a meeting again with one of my financial um, advisors, CPA tax person on Friday and um, it's happening, you know, like we will be retired very soon. And that's brought about um, an excitement and also a different feeling. I mean, because it, it's a closure and I, I will be glad to be moving out of the things that seem not to have a finish line. Um, but I want to make sure that, you know, what I bring into my life are either the short-term Zen activities um, or these longer-term Zen activities, you know, more of the biking or more of making sure that it, walking at night and um, things like that. So if you don't have a fireplace, folks, a wood fireplace, take the opportunity. If you, if you go on vacation somewhere and it's like, hey, we have a wood fireplace, rent that room. Give it a try. Now, I'm sure there's something about being around a fire pit and things like that too, but something about wood and, and fireplace and this this whole process, again, the zen of stacking. And But there's so many things you can do in life, whether it be gardening, um, whether it be you know learning some skills, repairing some of your own things around the house, that the zen component, this defined start, this hands-on activity, this completion that's tangible that then does not continue. It ends, has an end point. It's the vehicle that rolls off the assembly line. You're done building it, done. So I think we need more of that and to bring more of that into our lives because we we tend to saturate ourselves with these never-ending things. And not only never-ending, but also accelerating. And um, it's not good. It's cumulative it brings stress, it brings anxiety. It's just not healthy for us. It's completely fine. It's very healthy to stack some oak, to stack maple. So I almost wish you could be there and I wouldn't turn down the help most likely either. So, <laughs> all right, everybody. 
stay safe. This has been the Safety Doc Podcast with author, radio show host, and leading safety expert, Dr. David Perotti. Remember to check back each week for the latest, best, and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. You can find Dr. Perotin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe.